Good morning, everyone. Oh, that's a little loud. Or maybe it's just me. Um, so this morning, uh, as Rick mentioned, and as we just saw, that we are going to be starting an exposition of Acts. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. That is where we will begin with this. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. I think it's going to take several months to get through this. But I think it's going to be well worth it at the end of it. I think it's going to be great for building up our church and, uh, and also so that we can learn more about who God is and how he works. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We are going to be looking at the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so if you have, if you have your Bibles open, and if you would, would you please stand with me as we read the Word of God. In Acts chapter 1 it says this, Beginning in verse 1, it says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving his, church, his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he, com he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift of the that he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, God, we just want to thank you. We thank you this morning that we have your word this morning, God, that we can open up and that we can read and we can learn more about you and God, I pray that this morning that your spirit would be in this place, Father. I pray that you would just move in and out of every heart this morning, God. Open the minds and the ears of these people, God, that they would receive your word. Speak to them through your spirit, God, in a supernatural way, God. Change us. Put us on mission, Father, so that we would go forth with this glorious gospel that you have, have given us through giving your son, Jesus Christ, to die on behalf of all who would ever believe. And so, Father, we ask this morning... You be in this place. We ask you to come. We welcome you here this morning, God, knowing that, that apart from the Spirit of God, that everything that we are doing is in vain and useless, God. So we need you, and we cry out for you this morning, Father. As I proclaim your word, I pray, Father, that your Spirit would just use me as an avenue and a conduit, God, by which you would receive the glory. And we ask it all through Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So before we begin, I begin preaching on the promise here in these first five verses. Let's get a little bit of context. Let's get a little bit of understanding of what Acts is going to be about. And so this will be important as we continue on through this entire series. So, so the, the author of the book of Acts, or what is called the Acts of the Apostles, is what the book is actually called, the Acts of the Apostles. The author is Luke. And Luke is a Gentile physician, and he is an associate of Paul. Does anybody know what other book Luke wrote? <laughs> right? The, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Gospel of Luke, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we see here that he is addressing this in the very first verse. He says, I told you Theophilus. So this this book, the book of Acts, is addressed to Theophilus. Does anybody know who the book of Luke was addressed to? 
Theophilus. Same thing. So this is actually, the book of Acts is actually a continuation from the book of Luke. If you look at the end of the book of Luke, which we will, I will uh, mention some verses as I'm going through my sermon this morning. But if you look at the end of the book of Luke, the book of Acts actually, it, it, some of it um, overlaps. And Luke will mention things that he has already mentioned at the end of the book of Luke. And then he will continue on with his narrative. And so the date that the book of um, Acts was written was sometime between 63 and 70 AD. The book of Luke was written in 60 AD. So it was some three to seven years later that, or, or yeah, three to ten years later that this book was written. Um, and like I said, it is just simply, it's a narrative written by Luke that he would continue on to, so that he could show Theophilus everything that Jesus did. And so, and the church used this in the, in the beginning. Um, it was a letter that all of the churches used, not just a letter that Theophilus had. So, the genre of this, the main themes that we will see as we go through the book of Acts, is we will see empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which will be right here at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And then what we're also going to see is the establishment and the growth of the church in its New Testament form. Under the new covenant. Okay? Sola fide. By faith alone. Okay? That is what, this is what Luke is getting at in this. That, and, and we'll see that even Old Testament believers were saved in the exact same way as New Testament believers. The only difference is, is that Jesus has come. He has fulfilled his work. He has died on the cross. He has been raised from the dead. And so now that we know that, now that we have that information, now that we've experienced that, now we go forth on mission. And so we're going to see how the church is established and how it grows with that mission. Okay, and so some of the things that's highlighted is Peter's apostolic ministry, and then we also see over half of the book of Acts is geared toward Paul's apostolic ministry and the work that he did to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so the purpose of the book of Acts is to present an accurate account of the birth and growth of the Christian church. And so in Luke chapter 1, because it doesn't exactly, it's not like Paul comes, or Luke comes right, outright and says exactly what the purpose is here in the text. There, you won't find that exactly in the text. But, in, but if we understand that, that the book of Acts is a continuation from the book of Luke, then we can reference back to the book of Luke and we can see what the purpose was for the book of Luke. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Luke says this to Theophilus, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable, honorable Theophilus. Why? Why would you write this account for him? He says this, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So you can be certain of the truth of everything that you can tell. Listen, the reason why we are, why every Sunday that we come into this place, the reason why we open up our Bibles and then we, that we glean from God's word is so that we can be certain of the truth of who God is. You understand that? And so that is the point of this book. That is the point of the book of Luke. That is the point of the book of Acts. That is the point of every single book that we have within the Bible. God has given that to us by his grace so that we will be able to know him more and better. 
And so, you got to understand. So Theophilus, he wouldn't have had a Bible. Because in the New Testament church, right after Jesus has ascended, or is here now, but after he's died, so they don't have Bibles at this time. The Bible wasn't actually written in its full form in 66 books until sometime around 400 A.D. by St. Jerome. And so, in this, everything that Theophilus would have been taught, it would have been by word of mouth. Word of mouth. And so now Luke is writing this letter to him to confirm that which he has been taught by other faithful leaders within the church. And so, isn't it great, though, today that we actually have God's Word? It is compiled for us. We do not have to go out, and we do not have... And, and how easy it is to be able to verify truth against God's Word for us. But think about back then, whenever they didn't have the Word of God, how do you verify truth against what? What do you have? You have no absolute authority. I mean, whatever God says, it is, but... Who, who knows what God said? And so how difficult it would be to know exactly what is truth and what isn't truth. But thank God that we have his word and that we can look to it today. And so now we will begin the sermon this morning, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So like I said, Luke recaps some of what he has already said at the end of his gospel. And, and so... Whenever he does that, um, he, he talks about here in verses 1 through 5 um, that this is the continuation from his narrative of the gospel. And he says in verse 2, that's where I want to pick this up. So we know that it's written to Theophilus and it's about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach that was written in the first book. But he says this in verse 2, Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is giving his apostles instructions. He is commanding them through his Holy Spirit, is what Luke's saying. Um, and so in Luke 24, 45, it says this. It says, then Jesus opened the minds to understand the scriptures. Those two things go hand in hand. Through the, giving them commands, giving them instruction through the Holy Spirit, it would be the same as, as Jesus opening their mind. Apart from the Spirit is what... In, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says that we cannot understand who God is. We cannot understand anything at all about, who, about God, except that we have the Holy Spirit of God. And so, at the end of Luke, he says that he opens their minds so that they can understand the Scripture. And here he says that he gives them instructions through the Holy Spirit. Well, what was some of the instructions? That's what I started to think. Like, what are some of the instructions? Here in verses 4 and 5, we'll have an instruction that he gave. But if you look through every single gospel, there is an instruction that was given by Jesus after he had died and was raised from the dead and while he was with his apostles or with his disciples during those 40 days. And here's what we have. In John 21, verses 15 through 19, Jesus instructed Peter, and he restored him. Does anybody remember this? So after, so remember, Peter was going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and, then, and he did. And so now Peter is in the state of probably depression, kind of like, I can't believe I just did that. Like, that was Jesus, and now he's back. And then Jesus comes to him. And he says, Peter, do you love me? 
And remember what Jesus, he asked him that three times. And remember what Jesus says to him. First time, he tells him to feed my lambs. The second time, he says, take care of my sheep. The third time, he tells him to feed my sheep. And then, after he reveals how Peter would die, the last thing he tells him is, follow me. So he gives him these instructions. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, and follow me. So, whenever Luke says here, that Jesus had been giving them further instruction, we see that in the Gospel of John. In Mark, we see in chapter 16, verse 15, he says, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. To everyone. So he gives the command to go into the world and to preach. In Matthew 28, we call this the Great Commission, which it's the same as Mark 16, 15. But Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says this, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. Lo, I am with you till the end of the age. So that's the command, to go into the world, to teach people so that they will observe. And Jesus says, I will be with you when I do this, whenever you do this. And then in Luke, so we have John, as he's restoring Peter. Jesus is speaking to him, giving him, Gives him command there. Mark and Matthew, we have the Great Commission there that Jesus is instructing them to go do. And then at the end of Luke, verse 24 through 49, we see Jesus say to his disciples, he says, And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. Then he tells them this, But stay here in this city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with the power from heaven. Well, that is pretty close to what Luke again records now in verses 4 to 5. He says, once when he was eating with them, speaking of his apostles, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised. And I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Luke is reiterating this point that Jesus told the apostles to stay. To stay until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of this instruction, everything that was done here, whether it be from Peter feeding the lambs, to taking care of a sheep, to following Jesus, to staying that they will be, and then going forth and preaching the gospel, everything that is done here is for one purpose, and one purpose only. They must receive the power of the Holy Spirit to build the kingdom of God. Because it says here, Jesus says here, at the end of verse 3, it says, He talked to them about the kingdom of God. Of God. This was Jesus' purpose. This was Jesus' mission. And so now he is bringing this whole idea to fruition so that the apostles will understand what is going to happen. He has told them before, he has promised his spirit. In the Gospels, you can look back through and you can see where he's promised his spirit. But I believe that the apostles during that time, the disciples at that time, they really did not understand what was going to be happening. And now Jesus is explaining this to them. Stay here, you're going to receive, and then you're going to go feed my lambs. You're going to teach, take care of my sheep. You're going, going to feed my sheep. You're going to follow me. You're going to go, and you're going to preach the gospel to everyone. But, we can't do it on our own. 
We can't do it in our own power. We need God. And God knew that. He designed it in that way. And so here we see, he says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? And as I was reading this, like, like it's not something that I just like did not know. It's just something that I, I think a lot of times that in my mind, I'm, I just maybe ignore or don't think mu- much about. The Holy Spirit of God. Who is the Holy Spirit of God? The third person in the Trinity. He says you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. You're literally going to be baptized with the third person of the Trinity. God is going to live within you. God himself inside of you. Do you think about that daily whenever you wake up? Do you think about that whenever Bert's standing up here and that we're praying over him, that the only way that we could ever pray for him and that God would ever hear it is that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us and then that's when our prayers are heard? Do you know that whenever, if you were standing here praying for Bert and you didn't know what to say, that God is still hearing your prayer because the Holy Spirit is making utterance for you? It's God inside of you. Whenever you go out into this community and you serve anyone, it's God inside of you. Whenever you, whenever you teach people about God, who God is, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God inside of you. It's the third person of the Trinity. And so I had an inconsistency in my theology, and I'm going to admit this, and I even struggle with this. And I talked to Rick about it because I'm like, as I am going through this, and I'm studying this, and I'm looking at this, something that I've always thought that was absolutely incorrect and that I believed is in, was incorrect, is that, I see, the promise here is that they are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I had, always had this thought, I always had this notion that the people in the Old Testament, I mean, because this is New Testament, Jesus is going to ascend, the Holy Spirit is going to come, it's going to fall on the believers. And so I had this idea I had, in, this, in this belief that the people in the Old Testament didn't have the Spirit of God. And I had to repent of that. Because as I began to study this, because you look there in verse 2, and it says that he's giving them instructions through the Holy Spirit. Well, how can he be giving them instructions through the Holy Spirit, and yet then they are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Like, how does this work out? I didn't understand. I didn't get it. But I want you to understand something. And the the reason why I'm going here with this is from going from the third person of the Trinity, God himself inside of you, to going to God has, the Holy Spirit has always been present, is this. The Holy Spirit of God was not created on the day of Pentecost. It was not created in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit of God is God. He has all of the exact same attributes. He has all of the exact same personality as God himself. He has existed from all of eternity. And God is immutable. He's unchangeable. That means that the way that he acted in the Old Testament is the same way that he acts in the New Testament. It's the same way that he acts today. And he never, ever changes. And so I had this whole idea that some way that the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the Old Testament. But then that would mean that somehow God created his spirit in the New Testament to fall upon the people, which is absolutely incorrect. Which is abs- so, we are, so here's what I want to do this morning.
I want to labor the point that the Holy Spirit has always existed from all of eternity. And not only that, He's been active. He has been active. And then whenever we get to the end, I'll explain what the difference is with the promise of being baptized from what, the, how the Spirit worked in the Old Testament and even up till this day whenever um, they were waiting for the promise. And so, I have six examples of how the um, Holy Spirit worked or operated in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to, these are not going to be exhaustive. Um, they are going to be brief, so just bear with me. A lot of them I will go through pretty quick. But, just looking at Genesis chapter 1. Go to Genesis chapter 1, and in verses 1 through 2, most people can quote Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And look what he says at the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We see the Spirit of God in the second verse of the Bible. In the second verse. And so the Spirit of God is there whenever, whenever God is creating. In Genesis. So my first point is this. The Spirit gives life, He creates. He gives life, he creates. That is the first point I want you to see in the Old Testament. In Job 33, I love Job. But Job 33, Elihu, which is one of Job's friends, he says this whenever he is presenting his case against Job. He says, For the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Do you realize that apart from the Spirit of God, there is no physical life whatsoever? None at all. If you do not have the Spirit of God sustaining you every single moment of every single day, then you will cease to exist. The moment that God takes His Spirit it does not sustain you, give you the breath that you need, then you will cease to exist. You will die. There is no doubt about it. And so, we see that the Holy Spirit, He gives life and He creates. He gives life and He creates. He says the breath of the Almighty gives me life. But it's not just physical life. And so that's the thing that I want to point out the most. It's because the people in the Old Testament and the people in the New Testament, even us today, we were all saved in the exact same way. I am not a dispensationalist. I do not believe that at different times, in, in, in different circumstances, that God used different means to save people. I believe in, in covenant theology, so I believe that no matter whether you were in Genesis 1 and you were Adam and Eve, or, wh or whether you are the last person to be saved on this earth, that you are going to be saved in the exact same way. Because God doesn't change. He is always the same. And so, the new birth. The new birth, spiritual birth. Not only does the Holy Spirit give you physical birth, He also gives spiritual birth. Jesus said in John six sixty three, He says, and this is after He gives this awesome evangelistic sermon of eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and then all these people leave. Um, but He says this in verse sixty three. He says, "The Spirit alone gives eternal life." 
The Spirit alone gives eternal life. So not only is the Spirit necessary for physical life, it is also necessary for spiritual life. You realize sitting here today, the Bible says that you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. What can a dead man do to, to provoke a God to save him? Absolutely nothing whatsoever because you're dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. They lie there in the casket in the ground. That's exactly what they do. But the Spirit of God gives eternal life. Do you realize that it is the Spirit that must draw you to God? It is the Spirit that the very first, so as far as salvation goes, the process of salvation, it begins with this. It's called regeneration. Regeneration. There's regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification is the four process is the four steps in the process of salvation. And the very first one, regeneration, is not something that we can do. We are dependent upon God Himself to do it. I cannot change my own heart. How about you? I can't. I had a heart of stone, stone at one time, but by the grace of God, by His Spirit, He took that heart of stone out of me. This is what Ezekiel says, and He put a heart of flesh in me. And so now I submit, now I surrender to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it says the Spirit gives eternal life. Think about whenever, or whenever Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and is questioning Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, first off, you're a leader, you're a Pharisee, like, and you don't even understand what I'm telling you about the Spirit of God, that a man must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what, so he's got to go back into his mother and then come back? And Jesus is like, no, no. Unless a man is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So it's the Spirit who gives spiritual life. So point one, the Spirit gives life and He creates. Point two, the Spirit gives new birth. Turn with me now to Psalm 139, if you would. In Psalm 139, David says this in verses 7 through 10. He says, I can never escape from your Spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. The Spirit is always there. Third point, it is a constant presence. The Spirit of God is always there, no matter where you go. David says, I can go to heaven. He said, and you're still going to be there. Your spirit is still going to be on me. I could go into the grave. I could go into Sheol. And your, your spirit is still going to be upon me. Listen, folks, there is no place in all of the world that you can go to escape the spirit of God. Like I said, if, in fact, the spirit of God leaves you first, then you die. So you must be in constant presence of the Spirit at all times. Believers and unbelievers alike. I'm not saying that that makes unbelievers saved. That is not what makes unbelievers saved. That is what sustains their physical life here on this earth. But there is no place that you could ever go to escape the presence of God. Why? Because, because the Spirit of God has created everything. Where are you going to go that He didn't create? 
You could go to the deepest, darkest jungle in South, South America and be there by yourself, but I can tell you, you're not going to be by yourself because the Spirit of God is going to be there. You can go into Antarctica where there is nobody else, and you are not going to be by yourself there either because the Spirit of God is going to be there. If you are alive and well, the Spirit of God is there. And even if you die and you descend into hell, the Spirit of God is still there there and even if you die and you go to heaven because you are a believer in Jesus Christ the spirit of God is there it does not go away and we should be thankful for that we should be thankful for that so there is a constant presence there's a constant presence that's the third point and then we see that there is extraordinary power in the Old Testament that the Spirit gives to God's people. There's extraordinary power. In Judges 14, we see Samson here. And it says this, and this is verses 1 through 6, it says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine womans caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among the Israelites you could marry? They asked. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his, his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at the time. So listen to this. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. And then it says this in verse 6. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaw apart with his bare hands. God delivered him in that moment because God had a bigger plan for Samson. He gave him extraordinary power through his spirit. It says that, that the Lord's spirit literally came up on him. And he grabs the lion by its mouth, by its jaw, and rips it off. Like, that is crazy. That is crazy. I'd be running. <laughs> he's not. But he's fighting. Because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And that's exactly what happens whenever we have the Spirit of God upon him. We don't have to fear. So God gives him this extraordinary power. Think about this. Like I, Another example I have is like 2 Kings 2 and 9. So um, you remember Elijah and Elisha? So Elisha was... Um, was a student of Elijah, and so he's following him around. And so as Elijah is about to be taken up by this chariot of fire, so there's like 50 prophets that come, and they're, they're standing here next to the Jordan River, and so Elijah tells them all to stay here, and Elisha says, well, I'm going with you. And so he insists, and so Elijah takes this cloak and smacks the river with it, and the river parts, and he walks through to the other side. And then... Elijah asks, asks Elisha, he says, what is something that you want for me to do for you? And he says, the spirit that you have within you, 
give me a double portion of that spirit. And he says, well, if you, st- if you see me leave, then you will receive what you have asked. And so as Elijah and Elisha are standing there, a chariot of, chariot of fire comes down from heaven and takes Elijah up. And Elisha is still standing there. And, and Elijah's cloak falls from the sky. And Elisha picks it up. And he walks over and he smacks the Jordan again because the other, the other prophets are still on the other side waiting. And so he smacks the Jordan River again. It splits. He walks across. And as he's coming up to these 50 prophets, they say, we can see the Spirit of God upon him. Extraordinary power. Do extraordinary things. Has there ever been a moment in your life whenever you doubted, whenever you thought that there is absolutely no way that I'm ever going to get through this, there is absolutely no way that, that, that I can make it on my own, and then God miraculously shows up and provides a way. Because he's still working in the same way that he always did. We all have that testimony of something in our life that we can say, the Spirit of God, it was God alone who delivered me during that season. And so we have, the first one was, the Spirit gives life and He creates. Um, The second one was, He gives new birth, spiritual birth. Third is constant presence. Fourth is extraordinary power. The fifth thing that we want to look at is that the Spirit in the Old Testament also gave power to declare righteousness. So Micah, He was a prophet, and he was declaring a judgment against Israel's leaders for not being very good leaders. And he says this in verse um, 3, or in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, is what he says. I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. I am filled with justice and strength to boldly declare Israel's sin and rebellion. So to be able to even see sin, to be able to declare sin, Micah says, it is the Spirit of the Lord that is upon me. The only only reason I know the difference between right and wrong is because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And so, apart from the Spirit of God, in the Old Testament, all prophets were fakes. They were all frauds. We see false prophets all over in the Old Testament, but they are dependent upon the Spirit of God speaking to them for them to be able to speak to the people. And so, we see there, that's the point that I wanted to labor there, is that apart from the Spirit of God, that we can't know the differences between right and wrong. Apart from the Spirit of God, even in the Old it was they were dependent upon the Spirit, the prophets were, to be able to speak God's truth to the people, to be able to prophesy. And so that leads me actually into the last one. It's the gift of prophecy. The gift of, pro- of prophecy. And so in Numbers 11... We see Moses, and we see the children of Israel, and they're all out here in the wilderness, and um, God is giving them manna to eat, and they're not happy about it because they want meat. And so everyone's complaining because it's not, it's not good enough. It's not what they want. It's not satisfying. It's not, even though it is sustaining them, and it is absolutely all that they really need. But anyway, they start complaining to Moses, and 
Moses here, he in turn turns to God. They're complaining to me, so now I'm going to complain to you. This is how this is going to work out. And so the Lord tells him this in verse 16 of chapter 11 of Numbers. He says, Then the Lord says to Moses, Gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. I will come down and talk to you there. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also. So gather these 70 elders, bring them together. And I'm going to give him part of the spirit that you have. What's the spirit? Well, it's the spirit of God that's up on him. And so as, as we get on down in the story, because Moses follows, does exactly what the Lord says. Um, it says in verse 24, So Moses went out and reported the, to the Lord's people, uh, the, the Lord's words to his people. He gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle, and the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses. Then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses, and when the spirit uh, rested upon them, they prophesied. But this never happened again. That's what it says. So they prophesied. Whenever the spirit of God came upon them, they prophesied. So they were dependent upon that. John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist, the last prophet that there was, he was the one who was to prepare the way for Jesus to come. In Luke 1.15, as the angel is speaking to Zechariah, his father, about who he is, he says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. So we see the last prophet, the Old Testament, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, is what the Word of God says. And so it's the gift of prophecy. So all of these six things that I have just listed, that I have just went through and talked about, whether it's giving life, spiritual life, um, the presence of God, all of the extraordinary power, all the miraculous things that God does, it's the power to, know, to declare righteousness, to know the difference between right and wrong, to be able to speak for God. All of that came from the Spirit of God. So the people in the Old Testament had the Spirit the same as the people in the New Testament. There is only one thing that is distinctly different from the people in the New Testament. And so we're going to talk about that in a minute. So the Spirit of God has always existed. And that's what I want you to understand. The Spirit of God, the, Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always existed. He has always been there. He is God. He is as much God as God the Father is. The Spirit of God is as much God as Jesus is. It is the Trinity. And that's the point I want to make to you. The Spirit of God has always existed. And he has always been working. So the question is this. So if the people of the Old Testament had the Spirit of God, God's promising this gift of his Holy Spirit to come upon them, then what is the distinction between the two spirits? Well, it's all the same spirit. But what is the distinction between the work that it does and how it operates? And I think we can understand this if we understand what is being said here by Luke. Whenever he says in verse 5, he says, John baptized with water. 
And then he goes on to say, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Those two words, with, in the Greek language, are not the same word. They do not mean the exact same thing. Whenever it says there that John baptized with water, that with is a with that means like in location, in a certain location. So he was baptizing in the Jordan River. That was the water in the Jordan River. Or it can also be um, translated as the word by. So John baptized by water, meaning the agent of or the means. So he baptized you in the water, physically in the water. Your body was placed down into the water and brought back up. But the with that is used whenever it, Jesus says, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that with, it's a preposition and it means within or among or into. You will be baptized into the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized within the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized among the Holy Spirit. It is a totally different with. It's not the same thing. It's not the same type of baptism is what he is saying. He's not, he's not saying that it's the same baptism as water baptism is. And so, I just want to say that, and I want people to understand, and this is kind of off of the subject, but first off, I want you to know that if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus, uh, you're not saved by your baptism. The water did not save you in any way. Just like, we may, just like the point that I made that the Spirit gives new life, you are saved by the Spirit of God. You're saved by the Spirit of God. The only thing that the water, it's only a symbol. It's an ordinance that, that, that defines the true church, that the true church observes, the believers do, because it is commanded by a, for us to do that in the, in the New Testament. That we are to baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Great Commission, that's what Matthew said. And so, whenever you are baptized into water, you are simply identifying that you have surrendered your life to Jesus and he is now Lord of your life. And so whenever they put you down into the water, you are saying that you have died with Christ. You are dead to yourself, your flesh. And so whenever they raise you to new life, you're saying that the life of Christ now lives inside of you. The Spirit of God is inside of you and you are surrendered to that Spirit. But But he said here, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus even told his disciples this. The Spirit of God is going to live inside of you. In John 14, 16, Jesus says this. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't rec- recognize him. But you know him. And listen to what he says. Because he lives with you. But then listen to what he says. And later will be in you. So he lives with you. So how do you, how do you reconcile these two scriptures where the one says that he taught them, he taught the, or the apostles through the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on to say, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus already told them. He says he lives with you now but later he will be in you. He will be in you. And so, all the instructions that I previously mentioned about, out of all the Gospels, whenever Jesus was here and he had not yet ascended into heaven, 
all of those instructions out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that I, I gave you, whether it be the feed my sheep or the great commission or, or stay here until the Holy Spirit, all of those are for the benefit of building the kingdom. It says he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And so the Spirit empowers the church, each and every individual, to fulfill the vocation for which God has called you. What does that mean? So Rick talked about two weeks ago, he talked about spiritual gifts. Remember that? He talked about that out of 1 Corinthians 12. How we all have different gifts and we are to use these gifts to the building of the church. And it's, the gift isn't for your own benefit, it's for the benefit of everyone else. It's because the Spirit empowers you. That's a that's a, that's a gift that you have been given by the Spirit of God. It's literally how God works through you. Using that gift. And what is it for? For the building of the church. And so what was the point of this, this baptism of the Holy Spirit? It was because the Spirit was going to empower them with the gifts to be able to go forth and to be able to proclaim the gospel that the church would be built. God's kingdom would be built. And last week... Pastor Rick, he preached on love, and he says love is the consummation of the gifts. It is the completeness. It is the fullness. Even if you don't know what your gift is, you still should love. Seek love. It is the highest calling. Seek after love. In everything you do, love. And so even as I stand here this morning preaching to you this morning, if I am not preaching to you out of the love for Jesus Christ, out of love for you people, then... What did 1 Corinthians 13 say? That I am nothing more than a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. But I am preaching to you this morning that you may know Jesus better, that you may understand His Spirit and how it works in you, that you may go forth and that you may be able to proclaim the gospel to other people, that you can build the church of God, not you actually doing it yourself, but it's through the Spirit of God that lives inside of you to do it and to fulfill it. So... Pastor Rick used this, um, used this scripture at the end of his sermon last week in 1 John 4, 11 through 13. It says, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he is in us. And then Pastor Rick said this, God who is, who is love empowers us by His Spirit. By His Spirit. It is God that works in and through you. It is God's work that we get to be a part of. It is an opportunity. It, it is something that we, are not, that we should not be able to be a part of because we are sinful beings. But God loves us so much. That he sent his son to die on the cross to pay for the sin of all who would ever believe, to take our punishment, to face his wrath, and then raise him from the grave three days later so that now we can experience life everlasting with him. That is the great thing about the gospel. That is the amazing thing. That is it, folks. That is what it all is. There's nothing more to it. Like, that's the whole point of the church. That's how the church will be built upon that. Jesus asked Peter, he says, 
he says, these people are all saying that I'm maybe Elijah and a prophet, or who is this? And he says, Peter, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And he said, upon that rock, I will build my church. Jesus was not going to build his church upon Peter. It was what Peter exclaimed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. And so that's what Jesus builds his church on. It is on the gospel, and it is through the Spirit of God that lives inside of us so that we can even understand and, and understand God and even understand the gospel and be saved. It is all through all of that. It is a, simply a work of God in us to build his kingdom. To build his kingdom. And so I want to end by saying this. If you are a believer here this morning, here's what I want you to understand. The Spirit of the Almighty, sovereign, loving, holy, righteous, perfect God lives inside of you. That does not make you God. Don't go there. That does not make you God. But He lives inside. To think about a God who is so transcendent above us, who is greater than we will ever be, would come and live inside a lowly sinner like me. That's amazing. That's amazing. That he would even work through us is absolutely amazing. So the promise is the Spirit of God living inside of you to fulfill the vocation for which you have been called. God will build his kingdom. So it's comfort. It's confidence. Whom shall I fear? I've got the spirit of God living inside of me. Whom shall I fear? Where is a place that I shouldn't go? That God won't. God's going to be there. He'll be with me. He'll be in me. So wherever God leads, we surrender, we submit, we go. Whatever God leads us to do, we surrender, we submit, we do. Because it's the Spirit of God living inside of you. And I say to you today, if you're an unbeliever sitting here, that the Spirit of God is still upon you, sustaining you in physical life. But I pray that you would surrender to the gospel and that you would understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all who would ever believe. He's paid for your sin. So repent and believe. Repent and believe is what this is, what, this is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 as he's preaching. He, he, he's there and he's preaching these words. And, and it says, Peter's words pierced their hearts, speaking of the people who was there. And they said to him and the other apostles, Brother, what should we do? And Peter replied to him, he says, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of, the, of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sin." Believe in Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's it. So today, how I want to end is we're going to end with communion. And here's why. Because another thing that the Spirit of Christ does is it unifies His people. And Jesus also gave us His ordinance of the Lord's Supper to unify His people. And so this morning, what we are going to do is we are going to come forth and we are going to partake of this. But before we do, I want to read this to you. And I want you to 
Examine yourselves, is what Paul will say, before you partake of the Lord's Supper. And we'll just take, and you guys can just come up here, take one, and take it back to your seat. So we'll go through all this. Um, I'll pray, and then I'll, you know, give you guys time to come up here, get, and then just take it as you please. Whether you can do it up here in the front, you can go sit down, whatever you want to do. But here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of the wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So anyone who eats the bread, this bread, or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to pray in just a second. But we're going to have a moment of silence. And I want you to do exactly what the Bible says. Examine yourself. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance given to the church. If you are not a believer here this morning, I, I suggest that you don't take it. It's totally up to you if you want to take it. If you're here this morning and you're a believer and you have an unrepentant sin in your life, don't eat or drink unworthily. Repent of that sin before coming to receive. But I encourage all believers to take part in it for sure. So let's have a moment of silence. Think about what it is in your life that you need to repent. Think about this sermon. If there's something that you just realized, something that you just can't, that God just revealed to you through His Spirit, give Him glory for it. Praise Him for it. Father, this morning we just thank you for this opportunity, for this time to be able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, part of your kingdom, part of your church, God, that you have called us into. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would just continue to um, convict us whenever we need convicted, encourage us when we need encouraging, comfort us when we need comfort, whatever the case may be, God, only you know and you can work through that. So Father, we pray that you would do that this morning. And God, as we take of the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would focus on and that we would realize, God, by your Spirit, that we are unified for one purpose, one goal, called by you for your glory. God, I pray that we would not take this in an unworthy manner, pray that we would not be sinning against the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. I, want, I pray that we would recognize the new covenant and how great it is to know that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to pay for the sin of all of his people. And he rose from the grave for justification of life and has now imparted that unto us.
We thank you for everything that you do for us, God. And we give you glory this morning for everything. It's in Jesus' name.